Welcome to Creepy Curiosity, a podcast comprised of all things creepy and mysterious. Join me as I tell you about scary stories, urban legends, myths, mysteries, and haunted happenings from all over the world. Today, we're going to be talking about a mystery from the state of New Hampshire. Before I start this episode, I just wanted to give a warning to anyone who may be listening. Um, While it's not graphic at all or uh, detailed in any way, there are mentions of suicide and uh, child pornography. And I don't, um, like I said, get into any details or anything like that. But I just like to give a content warning. Listener discretion is advised, and some of the content in this episode may not be suitable for uh, younger listeners. Please uh, use your discretion. Oftentimes, when people mysteriously disappear, they do so without a trace. Usually we find out what became of them after thorough investigations take place to find either them or their remains. Every so often there are missing person cases wherein the person's fate remains unknown forever. The case we're talking about today is a case so perplexing, filled with eerie circumstances and contradictions, that even after years of investigation, tips from around the nation, and major advances in technology over the years, there still remain just as many questions as there were in the beginning, if not more. Um, A quick note about this episode as well is that there is not too much in-depth information to go off of. A lot of names of people involved in the case are never mentioned, and um, everything's just kind of vague. So all the information that is being presented to you is what is available as well as some that has been meticulously searched for. So that's all I want to say before I get started. Let's get into today's episode. For Judith Ron of Manchester, New Hampshire, nothing out of the ordinary took place during the day of April 26, 1980. On that day, she attended a professional tennis tournament being played by her then-boyfriend. Usually, her daughter, 14-year-old Laureen, would accompany the couple to the tennis matches. But on that day, Laureen had asked her mother if she could stay home, to which her mother Judith agreed. It was spring break and Laureen wanted to hang out with some friends at her and her mother's apartment. Laureen, along with one female friend of her same age and one male friend who was 21 years old, hung out at the apartment, chatted, and drank alcohol together. Around 12.27 a.m., the three friends heard noises in the hallway of the apartment building. Assuming Judith was home, the male friend abruptly got up and exited the apartment through the back door, as Lorene would have been in serious trouble if he was found there. The male friend would later go on to state that he heard Lorene lock the back door behind him as he left the apartment. The noises, however, turns out, were not that of Judith and her boyfriend. They didn't return home until a little while later, around about 1.15 a.m. Upon entering their apartment building on Merrimack Street, 
The couple noticed that every light bulb on each floor of the building's three floors had been unscrewed, leaving the entire place completely in darkness. As Judith attempted to enter her apartment in the dark, she noticed that her door was unlocked, which usually was never the case. Laureen knew to keep both doors front and back locked at all times, especially when she was alone. Once they entered the home, her boyfriend went to check the back door just to make sure. Finding that door unlocked as well, they both panicked and ran to check on Laureen, who was sound asleep in her bedroom. A few hours later, around 3.45 a.m., Judith would come to make a horrible discovery. The girl asleep in Laureen's bedroom was not Laureen, but in fact her friend that had come over that night. The friend claimed that Laureen was in bed with her, but at some point in the night had grabbed a pillow and blanket and gone to sleep on the couch. Her friend couldn't remember anything other than the fact that they had been drinking and both got very sleepy and tired. Upon realizing that Laureen was not in the home, Judith and her boyfriend began calling family and friends to see if any of them knew of Laureen's whereabouts. They also began combing the surrounding areas, frantically searching for the 14-year-old. Sometime after 4 a.m., Judith managed to flag down a police vehicle and report her daughter missing. Laureen Ron was born April 3, 1966, in Manchester, New Hampshire. Her parents divorced when she was an infant, and she was brought up by her mother, Judith. When Laureen was four, she and Judith moved to Miami. But six years later, they returned to Manchester. By 1980, they resided in their third-floor apartment on Merrimack Street, from where Laureen had gone missing. Laureen was an A student at Parkside Junior High School. She was described as a happy and outgoing girl and a good student who got along with her mother. She loved to sing and dance and had big dreams of being an actress. At the time that Judith had filed the missing persons report, the police claimed that they were sure that Laureen had just run away. However, when she did not return, they began to modify their theory. Now, here's where the contradictions that I had spoken about in the beginning of the episode come into play. If you ask Judith, Laureen's mother, she claims that Laureen would never have just up and ran away. But if you listen to other accounts where some people claim that Laureen was said to be, quote, troubled and told police that she spent much time alone on the streets, had talked about running away, and had began to experiment with smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol. Her aunt, Diane Pinault, also described her as, quote, an angel who hung around the wrong people for a while. What did all of this mean for the case? Well, more confusion. While not uncommon for teens to experiment and kind of uh, try breaking the rules a little bit. Talking about running away is uh, less common, but it is something that um, teenagers do as some form of like protest or rebellion. And sometimes they mean it, sometimes they don't. Oftentimes these are just words and they don't come to fruition. But if her aunt is saying she was troubled Is there any stock in that? Should we 
be examining that angle more? Well, police certainly seemed sure that Lorraine had just ran away from home in an active rebellion and would be back soon. But over time, she didn't return. There was no communication from her. There were no leads as to where she could have gone. The police began to sort of modify that theory, later stating that they believed that she had left the apartment with full intentions to return, but something had happened maybe on the way there or back to prevent that from happening. Going back to when I said that there are a few holes in the theory that she would have just ran away, um, what I mean by that is that Laureen was potentially inebriated just as her friend was um, from a night of drinking. And keep in mind, she's 14. So a 14-year-old girl who had just started experimenting with things like marijuana and alcohol um, would potentially be more inebriated than a full-grown adult who may have drank the same as her. And it can be considered highly unlikely that she could have executed a complex plan to run away. Another thing to consider is she didn't take a single one of her belongings, not even a pair of shoes. She didn't take her wallet. She didn't take any money. There wasn't anything missing from the home, no cash, jewelry, or valuables, and there was no sign of a struggle. So as the police got into investigating this case more seriously as a missing persons case, they decided to go around and uh, see if anyone had seen Laureen at places like bus stops. And in their initial investigation, police said that a bus company employee told the police that he had sold a ticket to a girl matching Laureen's description on the day that she had disappeared. And in their interviews with a bus driver from the same company, um, when he was shown an old photograph of Laureen, he claimed to have dropped her off in Park Square, Boston. However, a few weeks later, police uh, ended up obtaining a more recent picture of Laureen and interviewed him again. The driver at that time said that he was no longer sure that the girl he dropped off was Laureen. So as the uncertainty behind what happened to this 14-year-old little girl who seemed to vanish into thin air was only growing, there were other eerie details that seemed to be overlooked. The fact that the light bulbs from every floor of her apartment building had been meticulously unscrewed is a chilling detail that certainly makes me wonder who would go through the trouble of doing something like that without a specific intention. Also, another detail that is often mentioned is that in 1985, the 21-year-old male who was at her home with her that night committed suicide. And many people familiar with the case have posed questions of his involvement, um, asking why was a 21-year-old man hanging out with 14-year-olds? Um, did he maybe have something to do with Laureen's disappearance? Is it possible that he left and then returned to the apartment later, either to help Laureen facilitate her plan to run away or even possibly abduct her, um, sell her into trafficking? Did the guilt of what he did slowly eat him up inside until he finally couldn't take it anymore? It was determined by investigators that the 21-year-old was not a suspect, nor was he a person of interest in the case, and his eventual suicide was unrelated to Lorraine's disappearance. However, there still hasn't been a viable, plausible explanation for why 
all the light bulbs in the entire apartment building on every single floor would have been unscrewed. Who would do something like that? Why would they do something like that? And was there any investigation into how this came to happen? These are all questions that, for the most part, uh, still are unanswered. Lorraine's mother, however, was very sure that Lorraine didn't just decide to up and run away suddenly. A few months after Lorraine's disappearance, something would happen that would make her believe that Lorraine was somewhere out there and maybe was uh, reaching out for help. On October 1st, 1980, a few months after Lorraine's disappearance, Judith found that she had been charged for three phone calls to and from the state of California. Neither her nor Lorraine knew anyone there and never had any ties to the area. Upon further investigation and a deep dive into the numbers, it was found that two calls were placed from motels in Southern California. One motel was in Santa Monica and the other in Santa Ana. The third call was made to a sexual education hotline for teens with questions about sex. Judith firmly believed that Laureen had made the calls. Detectives spoke with the physician who maintained the teen sexual education hotline, and he initially denied knowing anything about the call. Five years later, in 1985, Carol Jensen, an investigator from the organization Wings for Children, called the same physician, and he changed his story. He claimed that a number of young women and runaways would occasionally visit his wife at their shared home and that one of the girls could have possibly been Lorene. He also said that Annie Sprinkle, a sex educator and former pornographic actress who allegedly knew his wife, might have had information regarding Lorene's disappearance, as well as information regarding the disappearance of other runaway girls. However, both investigators from Wings for Children and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children were unable to find any evidence linking Sprinkle to Lorraine's disappearance. The calls were always placed around 3.45 a.m. During these calls, Judith claimed that the caller never spoke, and the phone calls continued for several years after Lorraine's disappearance, increasing in frequency especially around Christmas time. For several years after Lorraine's disappearance, Judith kept the same phone number in hopes her daughter would reach out to her. While she did suspect that the mysterious calls she had been receiving were from her daughter, she had no proof, and eventually the call stopped. After she moved to Florida, she remarried and changed her phone number. Lorraine's aunt, Janet Roy, also reported that on several occasions after Lorraine's disappearance, a young girl would call their family telephone, asking to speak to their son, Michael. But whenever Michael picked up the phone, the caller was silent. Janet was convinced that the person calling was Loreen because the caller would ask for Mike specifically, a nickname that only Loreen would use to address her cousin, while the rest of the family called him Michael. In 1986, Carol Jensen, the investigator from Wings for Children, visited California. She located the motels from the October 1980 phone calls and discovered that one of the motels may have been used as a filming location by a child pornographer known only as Dr. Z. However, Jensen was unable to link Dr. Z to the sexual education hotline. The same year, 
1986, a childhood friend of Lorraine's named Roger Moraes received a phone call from a woman claiming to be Lori, a common nickname for Lorraine. Maurice's mother answered the initial phone call and stated that the woman claimed to have been her son's former girlfriend. Roger and Lorene had dated when the two were about 12 years old. It's unclear if Roger's mother thought that the girl on the other end could have been Lorene during the call. But when she told Roger about it, there was no doubt in his mind that it was his missing friend. In a 1990 interview, Roger was quoted as saying, It had to be her. I think she ran away. I think she's alive. The woman who called Roger was never identified. Throughout the years, there were many sightings of uh, what people claimed to be Laureen. One was in 1988 when a man reported seeing a young prostitute in Anchorage, Alaska, who he thought resembled Laureen. Laureen had gone missing in 1980, and at this point she would have been 22 years old. The picture that was circulating on her missing persons poster would have been about eight years old and not an exact idea of what Lorene would have looked like at the time. Police didn't pay too much mind to this sighting because so much time had passed between the photo on the posters and this alleged sighting. Throughout the 1990s and the early 2000s, there were few breaks made in the case, but police continued to follow multiple leads. In 2005, around the time of the 25th anniversary of Lorene's disappearance, Judith was contacted by Rick Jones, an investigator for the Clark County Coroner's Office in Las Vegas, Nevada. He wanted to know if she thought that the Arroyo Grande Jane Doe, an unidentified young woman whose body was found near Henderson, Nevada, in October of 1980, might have been Lorene. The young woman in question had been beaten and stabbed to death the day before she was discovered. It was worth noting that the discovery of the body came only days after the mysterious California phone calls were placed. This wasn't unusual, though, to Judith. Over the years, especially around April, the time when Lorene went missing, people would contact her thinking that they had seen Lorene or maybe found her body. Judith didn't really think that the Arroyo Grande Jane Doe might be Lorene. The nose and mouth, she said, were different. Jane Doe was two inches shorter than Lorene, and her hair and eye color didn't match. Jane Doe was described as being a redhead with green eyes, and Lorene was a brunette with brown eyes. Rick Jones suggested to Judith that the discrepancies in hair and eye color could be explained by the fact that um, hair can be dyed, which wouldn't be uncommon if Lorene was a victim of trafficking or being forced to partake in child pornography, and um, that the Jane Doe eye color description could be a mistake. But what stuck out to Judith the most was the fact that the Jane Doe had a small tattoo of the letter S on her arm. And according to Judith, she said that Lorene would never have a tattoo on her. She was quoted as saying, She's like her mother. We don't do well with needles. Still, Judith said she appreciated that Jones had reached out to her. She went on to say, At least I know people are still trying to help me find her. I feel better knowing that they're still doing things on the case. Eventually, they would use DNA tests with DNA taken both from Judith and Lorene's father 
to confirm whether or not Laureen was the Arroyo Grande Jane Doe. It turns out that the unidentified young woman from Las Vegas was not Laureen, and over the years, Laureen was also suspected of being other Jane Doe's from around the country, and every time they did a DNA test, she was ruled out as being those potential Jane Doe's. So now that we're in 2005 at this point, there's still no trace of Laureen, no even inkling of what could have happened to her. There have been no remains that have been questioned to be her or not. All have been ruled out. So as time went on, there were very few to no leads. Until about uh, 2010, uh, 30 years after Lorraine disappeared, a person reported a sighting of Lorraine in Boston, Massachusetts. But upon further investigation, police confirmed that the woman seen was not Lorraine. Okay, so this is where I want to kind of stop and reevaluate the information that I've shared so far. So starting in 1980, all the way until 2010, 30 years, there were leads being followed, there were um, miniature breaks in the case, and people doing what they can to possibly bring closure to this case, find out what happened to this little girl. As recently as 2020, 40 years after Lorene's disappearance to the date, her family was interviewed for an article in a local news site called ManchesterInkLink.com, where they stated that they still hold out hope in their heart that Lorene is alive um, and that they want to believe wholeheartedly that she's out there somewhere. Uh, the lack of answers has really been hard on the whole family, and one of Lorene's aunts has, much like her mother, kept the same phone number um, since 1980 in hopes that maybe she'll call, maybe they'll get some answers, maybe they'll find her. Um, but it looks just as puzzling and just as unsolved as it was the day, the week, the month that she disappeared. So I want to take a second and I want to kind of talk about this case. There was a lot of information in this case that was found uh, privately. And what I mean by that is Judith was at times not satisfied with how the investigation officially was going. So she hired a private investigator, but there was still no evidence to link Laureen to any of these findings. She may or may not have been there at those motels where she had placed the calls from. I also want to take this time and talk about some potential theories that people um, have shared in regards to Laureen's disappearance. So I'm going to talk about a few official theories as well as theories with some weight and some evidence behind them that may have been more plausible. Feel free to share any information that I may have missed. So something you'll recall that I mentioned earlier was that Laureen wanted to be an actress 
And there are um, theories that state that basically the motels where the phone calls came to Judith from in Southern California were hotels that were known for um, being used as spots to film child pornography. And um, when you look at the mysterious character that we only know as Dr. Z, we know that he is involved in the production of those things. And so one can speculate that Laureen, since she had dreams of being an actress, may have been made false promises and was lured to come to California to try her hand at acting and actually got sucked into this seedy world of exploitation. Another theory is that she may have been a victim of a serial killer named Terry Rasmussen, who is allegedly responsible for the disappearances and murders of numerous women in New Hampshire, as well as the murder of his wife that he confessed to in 2010, um, just before he died. So there are a number of things floating around. Something that people have also brought up is why did the physician who ran the sexual education hotline try to kind of point fingers at Anne Sprinkle, who at that point had created a career for herself post her adult film career in sexual education Um, She had gotten numerous degrees in the subject and was actually trying to spread awareness in the world instead of providing some potentially helpful leads. Many people speculate that Dr. Z and this physician are maybe the same person or people working together in order to traffic teens and young children and exploit them. So we have no real clue as to how things could have ended up for her, whether she's still out there. When I look into the details, of which, like I said, there are very few, there isn't even names of some of the people involved. I have no information on her friends' names. I have no information on other people involved, potential um people of interest aren't named. A lot of the information is either really vague or just not available. And if I look at all the information that I have been able to access, I kind of lean towards that maybe she did leave, but didn't know what she was getting herself into. Um, But I find it odd that she didn't take any shoes, any money, or anything. Maybe they told her, don't, you know, take anything with you. We have everything here for you. Um, We'll buy you new stuff. You never know what type of person or people this poor child had come into contact with and what they could have told her. But at the end of the day, this is all speculation and theories. What happened to Laureen Ron and her ultimate fate And where she is, if she's still out there, to this day remain a mystery. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. 
I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you will follow the podcast. Um, It's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And if you have any suggestions or you have stories that you want to submit to be read on future episodes, please reach out to me. My email is in the show notes. You can write me at creepycuriositypod at gmail.com. And I would appreciate any and all feedback as well. You can also follow me on Instagram at creepycuriositypod. Thank you again for listening and I will see you in the next episode.